This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. Chapter 18. The Prince with the Tramps. The troop of vagabonds turned out at early dawn and set forward on their march. There was a lowering sky overhead, sloppy ground underfoot, and a winter chill in the air. All gaiety was gone from the company. Some were sullen and silent, some were irritable and petulant, none were gentle-humoured, all were thirsty. The ruffler put Jack in Hugo's charge, with some brief instructions, and commanded John Canty to keep away from him, and let him alone. He also warned Hugo not to be too rough with the lad. After a while the weather grew milder, and the clouds lifted somewhat. The troops ceased to shiver, and their spirits began to improve. They grew more and more cheerful, and finally began to chafe each other and insult passengers along the highway. This showed that they were awakening to an appreciation of life and its joys once more. The dread in which their sort was held was apparent in the fact that everybody gave them the road, and took their ribald insolences meekly, without venturing to talk back. They snatched linens from the hedges occasionally, in full view of the owners, who made no protest, but only seemed grateful that they did not take the hedges too. By and by they invaded a small farmhouse and made themselves at home, while the trembling farmer and his people swept the larder clean to furnish a breakfast for them. They chucked the housewife and her daughters under the chin whilst receiving the food from their hands, and made coarse jests about them, accompanied with insulting epithets and bursts of hoarse laughter. They threw bones and vegetables at the farmer and his sons, kept them dodging all the time, and applauded uproariously when a good hit was made. They ended by buttering the head of one of the daughters, who resented some of their familiarities. When they took their leave, they threatened to come back and burn the house over the heads of the family, if any report of their doings got to the ears of the authorities. About noon, after a long and weary tramp, the gang came to a halt behind a hedge on the outskirts of a considerable village. An hour was allowed for rest. Then the crew scattered themselves abroad to enter the village at different points to ply their various trades. Jack was sent with Hugo. They wandered hither and thither for some time, Hugo watching for opportunities to do a stroke of business, but finding none, so he finally said, "'I see not to steal. It is a paltry place. Wherefore we will beg.' "'We, forsooth, follow thy trade, it befits thee. But I will not beg.' "'Thou'lt not beg?' exclaimed Hugo, eyeing the king with surprise. "'Prithee, since when hast thou reformed?' "'What dost thou mean?' "'Mean? Hast thou not begged the streets of London all thy life?' "'I? Thou idiot! Spare thy compliments. Thy stock will last the longer. Thy father says thou hast begged all thy days. Mayhap he lied. Peradventure you will even make so bold as to say he lied,' scoffed Hugo. "'Him you call my father?' Yes, he lied. Come, play not thy merry game of madman so far, mate. Use it for thy amusement, not thy hurt. And I tell him this, he will scorch thee finely for it. Save thyself the trouble, I will tell him. I like thy spirit, I do in truth, but I do not admire thy judgment. Bone-rackings and bastings be plenty enow in this life, without going out of one's way to invite them. But a truce to these matters. I believe your father. I doubt not he can lie. 
I doubt not he doth lie, upon occasion, for the best of us do that. But there is no occasion here. A wise man does not waste so good a commodity as lying for naught. But come, sith it is thy humour to give over begging, wherewithal shall we busy ourselves? With robbing kitchens? The king said impatiently, Have done with this folly. You weary me. Hugo replied with temper, Now, hark ye, mate. You will not beg, you will not rob. So be it. But I will tell you what you will do. You will play decoy whilst I beg. Refuse, and you think you may venture. The king was about to reply contemptuously, when Hugo said, interrupting, Peace! Here comes one with a kindly face. Now will I fall down in a fit. When the stranger runs to me, set you up a wail, and fall upon your knees, seeming to weep, then cry out as all the devils of misery were in your belly, and say, Oh, sir, it is my poor afflicted brother, and we be friendless. Oh, God's name, cast through your merciful eyes one pitiful look upon a sick, forsaken, and most miserable wretch. Bestow one little penny out of thy riches upon one smitten of God, and ready to perish. And mind you, keep you on wailing, and abate not till we bilk him of his penny, else shall you rue it. Then immediately Hugo began to moan and groan, and roll his eyes, and reel and totter about, and when the stranger was close at hand, down he sprawled before him with a shriek, and began to writhe and wallow in the dirt in seeming agony. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear!' cried the benevolent stranger. "'Oh, poor soul, poor soul, how he doth suffer! There, let me help thee up!' Oh, noble sir, forbear, and God love you for a princely gentleman, but it giveth me cruel pain to touch me when I am taken so. My brother there will tell you, your worship, how I am racked with anguish when these fits be upon me. A penny, dear sir, a penny, to buy a little food, then leave me to my sorrows. A penny? Thou shalt have three, thou hapless creature. And he fumbled in his pocket with nervous haste and got them out. There, poor lad! Take them, and most welcome. Now come hither, my boy, and help me carry thy stricken brother to yon house, where—' "'I am not his brother,' said the king, interrupting. "'What? Not his brother?' "'Oh, hear him!' groaned Hugo, then privately ground his teeth. "'He denies his own brother, and he with one foot in the grave.' "'Boy, thou art indeed hard of heart.' If this is thy brother, for shame, and he scarce able to move a hand or a foot. If he is not thy brother, who is he, then? A beggar and a thief. He has got your money, and has picked your pocket likewise. And thou wouldst do a healing miracle, lay thy staff over his shoulders, and trust providence for the rest. But Hugo did not tarry for the miracle. In a moment he was up and off like the wind, the gentleman following after, and raising the hue and cry lustily as he went. The king, breathing deep gratitude to heaven for his own release, fled in the opposite direction, and did not slacken his pace until he was out of harm's reach. He took the first road that offered, and soon put the village behind him. He hurried along, as briskly as he could, during several hours, keeping a nervous watch over his shoulder for pursuit. But his fears left him at last, and a grateful sense of security took their place. He recognized now that he was hungry, and also very tired. So he halted at a farmhouse but when he was about to speak, he was cut short and driven rudely away. His clothes were against him. He wandered on, wounded and indignant, and was resolved to put himself in the way of like treatment no more. But hunger is pride's master. So as the evening drew near, he made an attempt at another farmhouse. But here he fared worse than before, for he was called hard names and was promised a rest as a vagrant except he moved on promptly. The night came on, chilly and overcast 
and still the footsore monarch labored slowly on. He was obliged to keep moving, for every time he sat down to rest he was soon penetrated to the bone with the cold. All his sensations and experiences, as he moved through the solemn gloom and the empty vastness of the night, were new and strange to him. At intervals he heard voices approach, pass by, and fade into silence, and as he saw nothing more of the bodies they belonged to than a sort of formless drifting blur, there was something spectral and uncanny about it all that made him shudder. Occasionally he caught the twinkle of a light, always far away, apparently, almost in another world. If he heard the tinkle of a sheep's bell, it was vague, distant, indistinct. The muffled lowing of the herds floated to him on the night wind, in vanishing cadences, a mournful sound. Now and then came the complaining howl of a dog, over viewless expanses of field and forest. All sounds were remote. They made the little king feel that all life and activity were far removed from him, and that he stood solitary, companionless, in the centre of a measureless solitude. He stumbled along through the gruesome fascination of this new experience, startled occasionally by the soft rustling of the dry leaves overhead, so like human whispers they seemed to sound, and by and by he came suddenly upon the freckled light of a tin lantern near at hand. He stepped back into the shadows and waited. The lantern stood by the open door of a barn. The king waited some time. There was no sound, and nobody stirring. He got so cold, standing still, and the hospitable farm looked so enticing, that at last he resolved to risk everything and enter. He started swiftly and stealthily, and just as he was crossing the threshold he heard voices behind him. He darted behind a cask, within the barn, and stooped down. Two farm laborers came in, bringing the lantern with them, and fell to work, talking meanwhile. Whilst they moved about with the light, the king made good use of his eyes, and took the bearings of what seemed to be a good-sized stall at the further end of the place, proposing to grope his way to it when he should be left to himself. He also noted the position of a pile of horse-blankets midway of the route, with the intent to levy upon them for the service of the Crown of England for one night. By and by the men finished, and went away, fastening the door behind them, and taking the lantern with them. The shivering king made for the blankets, with as good speed as the darkness would allow, gathered them up, and then groped his way safely to the stall. Of two of the blankets he made a bed, then covered himself with the remaining two. He was a glad monarch now, though the blankets were old and thin, and not quite warm enough, and besides gave out a pungent horsey odor that was almost suffocatingly powerful. Although the king was hungry and chilly, he was also so tired and so drowsy that these latter influences soon began to get the advantage of the former, and he presently dozed off into a state of semi-consciousness. Then, just as he was on the point of losing himself wholly, he distinctly felt something touch him. He was broad awake in a moment, and gasping for a breath. The cold horror of that mysterious touch in the dark almost made his heart stand still. He lay motionless and listened, scarcely breathing but nothing stirred, and there was no sound. He continued to listen and wait during what seemed a long time, but still nothing stirred, and there was no sound. So he began to drop into a drowse once more at last, and all at once he felt that mysterious touch again. It was a grisly thing, this light touch from this noiseless and invisible presence. It made the boy sick with ghostly fears. What should he do? That was the question, but he did not know how to answer it. 
Should he leave these reasonably comfortable quarters and fly from this inscrutable horror? But fly whither? He could not get out of the barn, and the idea of scurrying blindly hither and thither in the dark within the captivity of the four walls, with this phantom gliding after him, and visiting him with that soft hideous touch upon his cheek or shoulder at every turn, was intolerable. But to stay where he was and endure this living death all night? Was that better? No. What then was there left to do? Ah, there was but one course, and he knew it well. He must put out his hand and find that thing. It was easy to think this, but it was hard to brace himself up to try it. Three times he stretched his hand a little way out into the dark, gingerly, and snatched it suddenly back with a gasp, not because it had encountered anything, but because he had felt so sure it was just going to. But the fourth time he groped a little further, and his hand lightly swept against something soft and warm. This petrified him nearly with fright. His mind was in such a state that he could imagine the thing to be nothing else than a corpse, newly dead and still warm. He thought he would rather die than touch it again. But he thought this false thought, because he did not know the immortal strength of human curiosity. In no long time his hand was tremblingly groping again, against his judgment and without his consent, but groping persistently on just the same. It encountered a bunch of long hair. He shuddered but followed up the hair and found what seemed to be a warm rope, followed up the rope and found an innocent calf. For the rope was not a rope at all, but the calf's tail. The king was cordially ashamed of himself for having gotten all that fright and misery out of so paltry a matter as a slumbering calf, but he need not have felt so about it, for it was not the calf that frightened him, but a dreadful non-existent something which the calf stood for and any other boy in those old superstitious times would have acted and suffered just as he had done. The king was not only delighted to find that the creature was only a calf, but delighted to have the calf's company, for he had been feeling so lonesome and friendless that the company and comradeship of even this humble animal was welcome, and he had been so buffeted, so rudely entreated by his own kind, that it was a real comfort to him to feel that he was at last in the society of a fellow-creature that had at least a soft heart and a gentle spirit, whatever loftier attributes might be lacking. So he resolved to waive rank and make friends with the calf. While stroking its sleek warm back, for it lay near him and within easy reach, it occurred to him that this calf might be utilized in more ways than one, whereupon he rearranged his bed, spreading it down close to the calf, then he cuddled himself up to the calf's back, drew the covers up and over himself and his friend, and in a minute or two was as warm and comfortable as he had ever been in the downy couches of the regal palace of Westminster. Pleasant thoughts came at once. Life took on a cheerfuller seeming. He was free of the bonds of servitude and crime, free of the companionship of base and brutal outlaws. He was warm, he was sheltered, in a word, he was happy. The night wind was rising. It swept by in fitful gusts that made the old barn quake and rattle. Then its forces died down at intervals, and went moaning and wailing around corners and projections. But it was all music to the king now that he was snug and comfortable. Let it blow and rage, let it batter and bang, let it moan and wail, he minded it not, he only enjoyed it. He merely snuggled the closer to his friend, in a luxury of warm contentment, and drifted blissfully out of consciousness into a deep and dreamless sleep that was full of serenity and peace. The distant dogs howled, 
the melancholy kine complained, and the winds went on raging, whilst furious sheets of rain drove along the roof. But the majesty of England slept on, undisturbed, and the calf did the same, it being a simple creature, and not easily troubled by storms, or embarrassed by sleeping with a king. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 The Prince with the Peasants when the king awoke in the early morning, he found that a wet but thoughtful rat had crept into the place during the night, and made a cosy bed for itself in his bosom. Being disturbed now, it scampered away. The boy smiled, and said, "'Poor fool! Why so fearful? I am as forlorn as thou. T'would be shame in me to hurt the helpless, who am myself so helpless. Moreover, I owe you thanks for a good omen. When a king has fallen so low that the very rats do make a bed of him, it surely meaneth that his fortunes be upon the turn, since it is plain he can no lower go." He got up and stepped out of the stall, and just then he heard the sound of children's voices. The barn-door opened, and a couple of little girls came in. As soon as they saw him, their talking and laughter ceased, and they stopped and stood still, gazing at him with strong curiosity. They presently began to whisper together. Then they approached nearer, and stopped again to gaze and whisper. By and by they gathered courage, and began to discuss him aloud. One said, "'He hath a comely face,' the other added, "'and pretty hair, but is ill-clothed enow, and how starved he looketh!' They came still nearer, sidling shyly around and about him, examining him minutely from all points, as if he were some strange new kind of animal but warily and watchfully the while, as if they half feared he might be a sort of animal that would bite upon occasion. Finally they halted before him, holding each other's hands for protection, and took a good satisfying stare with their innocent eyes. Then one of them plucked up all her courage, and inquired with honest directness, "'Who art thou, boy?' "'I am the king,' was the grave answer. The children gave a little start, and their eyes spread themselves wide open and remained so during a speechless half-minute. Then curiosity broke the silence. "'The king? What king?' "'The king of England!' The children looked at each other, then at him, then at each other again, wonderingly, perplexedly. Then one said, "'Didst hear him, Marjorie? He saith he is the king. Can that be true? How can it be else but true, Prissy? Would he say a lie?' For look, you prissy, and it were not true, it would be a lie. It surely would be. Now think on't, for all things that be not true be lies. Thou canst make naught else out of it." It was a good tight argument, without a leak in it anywhere, and it left Prissy's half-doubts not a leg to stand on. She considered a moment, then put the king upon his honour, with a simple remark, "'If thou art truly the king, then I believe thee.' "'I am truly the king.' This settled the matter. His Majesty's royalty was accepted without further question or discussion, and the two little girls began at once to inquire into how he came to be where he was, and how he came to be so unroyally clad, and whither he was bound, and all about his affairs. It was a mighty relief to him to pour out his troubles, where they would not be scoffed at or doubted. So he told his tale with feeling, forgetting even his hunger for the time and it was received with the deepest and tenderest sympathy by the gentle little maids. But when he got down to his latest experiences, and they learned how long he had been without food, they cut him short, and hurried him away to the farmhouse to find a breakfast for him. The king was cheerful and happy now, and said to himself, "'When I am come to mine own again, 
I will always honor little children, remembering how that these trusted me and believed in me in my time of trouble, whilst they that were older and thought themselves wiser mocked at me and held me for a liar. The children's mother received the king kindly and was full of pity, for his forlorn condition and apparently crazed intellect touched her womanly heart. She was a widow and rather poor. Consequently, she had seen trouble enough to enable her to feel for the unfortunate. She imagined that the demented boy had wandered away from his friends or keepers, so she tried to find out whence he had come, in order that she might take measures to return him. But all her references to neighboring towns and villages, and all her inquiries in the same line, went for nothing. The boy's face, and his answers too, showed that the things she was talking of were not familiar to him. He spoke earnestly and simply about court matters, and broke down more than once when speaking of the late king, his father. But whenever the conversation changed to baser topics, he lost interest and became silent. The woman was mightily puzzled, but she did not give up. As she proceeded with her cooking, she set herself to contriving devices to surprise the boy into betraying his real secret. She talked about cattle. He showed no concern. Then about sheep. The same result so her guess that he had been a shepherd-boy was an error. She talked about mills, and about weavers, tinkers, smiths, trades, and tradesmen of all sorts, and about bedlam, and jails, and charitable retreats, but no matter she was baffled at all points. Not altogether, either, for she argued that she had narrowed the thing down to domestic service. Yes, she was sure she was on the right track now. He must have been a house-servant. So she led up to that but the result was discouraging. The subject of sweeping appeared to weary him. Fire-building failed to stir him. Scrubbing and scouring awoke no enthusiasm. Then the good wife touched with a perishing hope, and rather as a matter of form, upon the subject of cooking. To her surprise and her vast delight, the king's face lighted at once. Ah, she had hunted him down at last, she thought, and she was right proud, too, of the devious shrewdness and tact which had accomplished it. Her tired tongue got a chance to rest now, for the kings, inspired by gnawing hunger and the fragrant smells that came from the sputtering pots and pans, turned itself loose, and delivered itself up to such an eloquent dissertation upon certain toothsome dishes, that within three minutes the woman said to herself, Of a truth I was right! He hath holpen in a kitchen! Then he broadened his bill of fare and discussed it with such appreciation and animation that the good wife said to herself, "'Good lack! How can he know so many dishes, and so fine ones withal? For these belong only upon the tables of the rich and great. Ah, now I see, ragged outcast as he is, he must have served in the palace before his reason went astray. Yes, he must have helped in the very kitchen of the king himself. I will test him.' Full of eagerness to prove her sagacity, she told the king to mind the cooking a moment hinting that he might manufacture and add a dish or two if he chose. Then she went out of the room and gave her children a sign to follow after. The king muttered, "'Another English king had a commission like to this in a bygone time. It is nothing against my dignity to undertake an office which the great Alfred stooped to assume. But I will try to better serve my trust than he, for he let the cakes burn.' The intent was good, but the performance was not answerable to it for this king, like the other one, soon fell into deep thinkings concerning his vast affairs, and the same calamity resulted. The cookery got burned. The woman returned in time to save the breakfast from entire destruction, and she promptly brought the king out of his dreams with a brisk and cordial tongue-lashing. 
Then, seeing how troubled he was over his violated trust, she softened at once and was all goodness and gentleness toward him. The boy made a hearty and satisfying meal, and was greatly refreshed and gladdened by it. It was a meal which was distinguished by this curious feature, that rank was waived on both sides, yet neither recipient of the favor was aware that it had been extended. The good wife had intended to feed this young tramp with broken victuals in a corner, like any other tramp, or like a dog, but she was so remorseful for the scolding she had given him that she did what she could to atone for it by allowing him to sit at the family table and eat with his betters on ostensible terms of equality with them, and the king on his side was so remorseful for having broken his trust after the family had been so kind to him that he forced himself to atone for it by humbling himself to the family level, instead of requiring the woman and her children to stand and wait upon him while he occupied their table in the solitary state due to his birth and dignity. It does us all good to unbend sometimes. This good woman was made happy all the day long by the applause which she got out of herself for her magnanimous condescension to a tramp, and the king was just as self-complacent over his gracious humility toward a humble peasant woman. When breakfast was over, the housewife told the king to wash up the dishes. This command was a staggerer for a moment, and the king came near rebelling, but then he said to himself, Alfred the Great watched the cakes. Doubtless he would have washed the dishes, too. Therefore will I essay it. He made a sufficiently poor job of it, and to his surprise, too, for the cleaning of wooden spoons and trenchers had seemed an easy thing to do. It was a tedious and troublesome piece of work, but he finished it at last. He was becoming impatient to get away on his journey now. However, he was not to lose this thrifty dame's society so easily. She furnished him some little odds and ends of employment, which he got through with after a fair fashion and with some credit. Then she set him and the little girls to paring some winter apples, but he was so awkward at this service that she retired him from it and gave him a butcher-knife to grind. Afterward she kept him carding wool until he began to think he had laid the good King Alfred about far enough in the shade for the present, in the matter of showy menial heroisms that would read picturesquely in story-books and histories, and so he was half-minded to resign. And when, just after the noonday dinner, the good wife gave him a basket of kittens to drown, he did resign. At least, he was just going to resign, for he felt that he must draw the line somewhere, and it seemed to him that to draw it at kitten-drowning was about the right thing, when there was an interruption. The interruption was John Canty, with a peddler's pack on his back, and Hugo. The king discovered these rascals approaching the front gate before they had had a chance to see him, so he said nothing about drawing the line, but took up his basket of kittens and stepped quietly out the back way without a word. He left the creatures in an outhouse, and hurried on into a narrow lane at the rear. End of chapter 19